0: Okay, Jesse, last week's murder for money was a classic love murder tale. What's the story this time?
1: When a loving husband defends his family against an unknown intruder, the results are deadly. The case is quickly closed, but when a mysterious witness comes forward years later, a shocking truth is revealed. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy.
0: Hi, Jesse.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about awful affairs, unbelievable alibis, and love gone fatally
0: wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please
1: love slash murder, a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Okay, this is a very emotional episode for Andy and I, because it's our last one that we get
0: to do together, gosh darn it. Yeah, well, for 2021. For 2021. Like, let's not be so dramatic.
1: Luckily, Andy and her family come to visit quite often, even though I live in the middle of nowhere and she lives (laughs) in Los Angeles. Best friend (laughs) award.
0: Best friend award. (laughs) You do.
1: She lives (laughs) in Los Angeles. You would think my family would be traveling to see her more in a cultural center, but no we get we get her all the time because she is the most wonderful it's true and i never leave my house <laughs>
0: Which is fine. I actually get to live my like suburban dreams here. Yes you, do. yes, you do. We've been having a lot of fun. We're also now on
1: TikTok. So if you are interested in seeing us very poorly, try to stay on the <laughs> the trends of the youth. Or if you have any trend ideas to send our way. Oh my gosh, please tell us what to do. I mean, we're going to start actually doing the true crime thing lately. We've just been kind of doing the whatever thing. I mean, we really, we should be recording right now. So anyway, we'll we'll get on top of our TikTok game maybe. But you know, we are in our mid to
0: late 30s here. Mid so closer mid. to mid Closer to mid. (laughs) Like in between mid and late. So,
1: you know. Yes. But thank you guys so much for all of your well wishes.
0: We've had such an extraordinary time being together over this holiday. We've gotten to wear a lot of like similar outfits together (laughs) late night on the couch. Yes. A lot
1: of uh, binge watching bad holiday movies. Yeah. We love each other. We love you guys. And I think we should jump right in. Although before we get started, I have to say sending lots of love to two listeners who requested this story because wowza is it an insane one and now i can remove it from my google doc sheet yes thank you andy has organized your requests i had them all written on a manila folder so you can imagine how that was going to now we have over a year of requests so yes thank you to alicia J and heather b who i've talked about before I think that on one of our very early episodes, we congratulated her on getting engaged, and now she is married with a baby on the way. Yay! Yay, we love you, Heather. All right, let's get into it. On August 29th, 1995, a chilling call came into the 911 dispatch. Emergency, emergency, there's a man. He beat my wife and I shot him. My God, my wife's bleeding. As the operator sent help, she also asked the man on the line some questions. Is the man still in your house? Yes, he cried. Did you shoot him? Yes, I shot him. He was killing my wife. The operator detected a human noise in the background, and the man blurted out, "Uh, uh, My baby's crying. I'll call you back. And he hung up. Police and emergency medical technicians rushed to the suburban home in Springfield, Illinois. (gasps) A cozy enclave where even petty crime was rare, especially at 4.30 in the afternoon. The scene that met them was out of a horror movie. A beloved mother of a three-month-old baby, beaten to death with a hammer. What? Her assailant, a disturbed young man bent on revenge, was lying shot to death next to her and a heroic, weeping husband who had defended his wife and child against the home invader, but tragically, not soon enough to save his wife's life. The cops were quick to confirm the survivor's story, and the case seemed one of clear-cut self-defense. In a world of convoluted murder plots, cold cases, and Jane and John Doe's, it was a straightforward enough scenario. The bad guy had committed assault and murder and then paid with his life the cops applauded the husband for his actions and empathized with his grief. All except one rookie detective who couldn't quite shake the feeling that something wasn't right. Ah, it's
0: always the rookie detective.
1: And that was gut instincts. It would take years for that detective to pull on the threads that would eventually untangle a diabolical plot and rock the lives of four families forever. So let's talk about this couple and find out what could have possibly led to that grisly crime scene. Donna Brown was born in 1963 and raised in Newburgh, New York, which is actually kind of in my neck of the woods in the Hudson Valley area. And then the family moved to Hollywood, Florida. Donna was the eldest of three sisters whose parents divorced when she was 17. Her mother, Sarah Jane, would eventually go on to remarry Ira Drescher, who would become a loving father figure to Donna and her sisters. Donna was vibrant, vivacious, and totally fun-loving. She was slim and athletically built her whole life and a head full of dark, wavy hair. People commented on her big brown eyes and her contagious smile. Donna skipped college in favor of becoming a dental assistant, where she fell in love with the medical field. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, the medical field. Yes, the medical field, not a medical guy. <laughs> a learning disability that made testing extremely difficult for her prevented Donna from becoming a physician. But through her tenacity and instinctual smarts, she became a highly sought after surgical assistant at a busy hospital. And that's really not easy. No. You have to stand for hours and hours completely attentive and understand everything that's going on. Yep. I mean, it's, it's a very grueling marathon-like job. Donna's two big goals in life were to continue working in surgery for which she had a passion and to one day find a partner and have children. Aww. Donna loved kids and she was really good with them as well. Well, both dreams came true after a nurse anesthesiologist named Greg Winger set her up on a blind date with his impressive brother, Mark, who had just returned home from a year in Korea. Mark had been an Army lieutenant who had received a degree in physics from the Virginia Military Institute. He was now honorably discharged and working as a civilian physicist. His goal was to work in nuclear energy. Super duper smart. The blind date was a smashing success. Mark was polite, soft-spoken, clearly intelligent, and had a very wry sense of humor that appealed to fun-loving Donna. Mark found Donna extremely attractive, and he loved her straightforward and enthusiastic approach to life. It was love at first kiss as they said goodnight. After that evening, Mark told his family that Donna was a breath of fresh air and that he hadn't ever met anyone like her. Aww. The wingers embraced Donna as part of the family immediately, and Donna's family did the same to Mark. What was there not to love about Mark for them? He was young, smart, successful, and Jewish. The families shared a lot of the same values, and they meshed super well together. So as you can imagine, everyone was pretty darn psyched when Mark proposed to Donna after six months of dating (laughs) at a dinner with both families present. Yeah, six months. I mean, they must have not liked each other that much because, I mean, we got married in five months. Seriously. Sarah Jane delighted in planning her daughter's wedding. For nine months, they worked together to make the event a -a one-of-a-kind celebration of love. It was the most wonderful time of our lives, Sarah Jane said. We were working together as mother and daughter. I wish every mother could have the experience I had with Donna. Oh, that's really cute. They were a very, very tight mother-daughter combo. Okay. Very sweet, sweet. The happy couple wed March 4th, 1989, slow dancing to I only have eyes for you and scoring a coveted spot in the New York Times wedding announcement page. Whoa. I know. That's a big deal.
0: Wow. Did you have to pay for that or did they like scout out important weddings? Like, so I think it you don't have to pay
1: for it, but you have to like be somebody in society yeah. to get in or famous or yeah. something. I think that she got in because... Sarah Jane's father had worked for the New York Times. Okay. So there was some connection there. They're also like really, you know, successful, professional, attractive people. So yeah. it's not really a surprise either. While Mark and Donna were still newlyweds, they decided to move to Springfield, Illinois, so Mark could take a job as an engineer for the Department of Nuclear Safety. Wow. Wow. Yeah, super important job. Donna quickly landed a job in the day surgery unit of Memorial Hospital. There, she befriended an attractive yet shy surgical nurse named Deanne Schultz. Soon, Donna became Deanne's most trusted, confidant and her best friend. The women introduced their husbands, who also got along, so the two couples frequently double-dated. The wingers also joined a synagogue and built many deep friendships within that community, especially with the affable Rabbi Mike Datz and his lovely wife, Jo. Joe instantly took a liking to the warm Donna and a friendship was really solidified when the women discovered that they were both like relatively recently married and they both wanted to have big families. Okay. So they both were like, are you trying? I'm trying. And it was like that exciting thing where they like wanted to raise their babies together, you know? That thing like that happened to us for a week. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Wait, if you're a new listener, Andy and I found out we were
0: pregnant on the same exact day, like a week after we both realized that we might be trying.
1: Yes, exactly, because we hadn't really talked about it. No. Yeah, and then we had our babies 5 days apart. Anyway, going back to Joe and Donna trying for some babies. So Donna was so excited about trying to get pregnant. She was just so open with her friends and family about everything involved in the process. Like she was like a little bit like me, you know, Andy, I'm very TMI. And she would also like tell her family members like, oh, I'm ovulating. And we did this and we tried that. And, you know, this is what we're going to do next month. And she was just very open about the process. But which in
0: 89, that like was not.
1: No. Yeah. The unfortunate thing, though, for Donna was that eventually, like month after month, nothing was happening. Okay. And then, you know, a year had passed by. Still nothing was happening. Eventually, her and Mark got checked out. And unfortunately... Donna had a defect in her fallopian tubes that made it absolutely impossible for her to conceive. Yeah. And it was, it sounded like at the time too, that there was no other recourse. Like there was, for whatever reason, you know, an IVF situation wasn't going to work, you know? So, you know, they just had to be dealt that huge blow to their relationship and to their lives because the two of them had really bonded about wanting a large family. Yeah. And now they're finding out this tragic news. But despite, you know, that crushing disappointment, Donna refused to give up on her dream of being a mother. And in December of 1994, her prayers were answered when a OBGYN at the hospital she worked at mentioned that she had a 15-year-old pregnant patient who wanted to adopt uh, her baby. Okay. So, of course, Donna saw this as a sign. that She met the girl, and it was an instant connection. That's amazing. It really was like a godsend. It's incredible. And so the girl really did want to find a good home for her baby, and Donna and Mark were just everything she could have dreamed of. For the next five months, the wingers— held their breath and they jumped through all of the adoption hoops. You know how scary yeah. it must be to be playing the waiting game and trying to do the paperwork. And, you know, at any moment, you know, the birth mother can decide to change her mind. Yep. And I guess there was a situation where the birth father didn't want to sign away his parental rights for a little while, but then he met with the wingers and eventually he became so entranced with them as well that he was like, you're absolutely the right parents for my child. Great. But yeah, it was, it was not an easy road despite this wonderful occurrence, but everything, I mean, everything that they had gone through, all of the infertility, all of the pain, all of the, you know, struggles in the adoption phase were almost immediately taken from their minds when on May 27th, 1995, a baby girl was born and after a couple of days placed in Donna and Mark's waiting arms. So I used a couple things for this podcast, guys, today. So I read a book called Invitation to a Murder by Gail Abbott Zimmerman, who is a producer for 48 hours. What? And so yeah, she wrote the book as part of this. Apparently, there's a, a book series that is all about different 48 hours cases from the producers. Okay. Which is really neat. And then there's also a 2020 episode that came out about this case in April of this year, um, 2021. And so on the 2020, they have the actual video of when the baby came home and just Donna crying. And Sarah Jane, her mother, is like taking the video. And she's like, a very special baby's coming home today. And it just was like immediate. It was immediate love, no question. It was just like Donna looked at this baby and she's like, oh, you're mine. Yeah, there wasn't any of that, like, oh, was it harder to bond with a baby that's not biologically yours? It was, like, completely instantaneous, and everybody said that. So they did name the baby Bailey in honor of Donna's grandmother, and the couple recorded every event in young Bailey's life. Like, everything is on video camera. They had a ton of footage, and they marveled at her tiny little feet and hands. They just dreamed of this huge, big life she had ahead of her and kind of were just couldn't believe their luck, you know? They were deliriously in love, and it was the happiest Sarah Jane had ever seen her daughter, which made the events of August 29th, 1995, only three months later, all the more tragic. So what the hell happened on that terrible day. Let's go back to Mark calling 911 and dive back in. At 4:29 p.m. that day, a patrolman named Dave Berringer responded to a call that a homeowner on the west side had shot an intruder. Now, this was exceptionally noteworthy for the safe neighborhood. By the time Berringer arrived, the medics had arrived as well as another officer. Berringer noticed a vehicle out front that stood out for a couple of reasons. Number 1, it was a beat-up maroon Oldsmobile. And this was a very tidy, upper middle class neighborhood that had like, you know, the perfect lawns and perfectly washed cars out front. So it did stick out like a sore thumb. But the other thing was that it was parked the wrong way in front of the house, like it was against traffic. Yep. So he took some pictures of that. When Barringer stepped inside, he was immediately struck by the intense violence of the scene and the sickening smell of blood and death. On the floor laid a woman, later determined to be Donna, with gaping head wounds so deep that they exposed her brain. Jesse. Two medics were working on Donna tirelessly, but she was not responsive and unfortunately was later pronounced dead. Another victim, a tall, thin male, lay about five feet away who appeared to have been shot in the head. The man was still breathing, but did not appear to be long for this world. Following the sound of a baby crying, Beringer went to a back bedroom where a distraught Mark Winger was being interviewed by another officer. Beringer scooped up the baby. I guess the, the baby was crying like behind him on the bed. Okay. He was like so shell-shocked and like freaked out and obsessed. Like he was just like sitting there talking to the officer. So Beringer scooped up the baby and started like cooing to her and calming her down. Okay. And it worked. But then he heard the ambulance coming and he realized that more medics were going to come in people were going to start swarming the scene and they were going to lose some of the physical evidence from the actual crime scene as more and more people came in and brought their medical equipment and so he went outside and luckily there was a neighbor standing there who was concerned and knew the family so he gave her the baby he went to his car he got a polaroid camera and he took a few shots of the crime scene before the medical team could move things around okay Major case squad detectives Charlie Cox and rookie Doug Williamson arrived on the scene at 5 p.m., half an hour after the call had come in. The first officer on the scene gave the detectives the down low. Two victims with likely fatal head wounds. The woman was Donna Winger, and the male was an unknown intruder. Two weapons had been secured, a 45 semi semi-automatic pistol and a bloody
0: hammer. Yes. Yeah, so still no one knows who this guy is. No. Okay.
1: Eventually, the police do go through his pockets, and they find his wallet. So he is later identified. I would hope so. But at the time, Mark does not know. He does not recognize this man. He does not know why he was attacking I his like wife.
0: vaguely, vaguely, like not even an ounce of me remembers the outcome of this, but I lived in Illinois when this happened. No, you didn't, really? Yeah, I lived in Cary. How far away is Springfield? It's far. It's four hours or a little under, but I was in sixth grade. When this happened, and I remember because I remember learning about being able to defend yourself against someone who is intruding your house.
1: Well, let's see if this jogs your memory. Mark Winger, the homeowner and husband to Donna, claimed that he had been jogging in the basement when he heard a thud and some other strange noises from above. He went upstairs and he went first into his bedroom And he saw that his baby was lying just in the middle of the bed by herself, which was not something Donna would have ever done to leave her baby because obviously they can roll over, they can wiggle their way, you know, off the bed. So he knew immediately something was very wrong. There was obviously a noise out in the hall. So he grabbed a pistol from his bedside table then he went into the hallway to go towards the dining room where he was greeted by a horrific sight. A strange man that he had never seen before
0: was beating his wife to death in the head with a hammer. This didn't have anything to do with the paternal father, did it? No. Okay. No, no. Okay. That's a red herring.
1: But that's a good thought, Andy. That's a good thought. So... The man turned to look at Mark, and Mark immediately shot him. Now, he is also a military vet, remember? So he was a good shot. Yeah. So he shot him, and then when the man fell backwards, it seemed like he tried to get up again. Okay. And so Mark shot him a second time at closer range. He said he then called 911, and the responding officers said that Mark had been cradling or touching his badly beaten wife when they arrived on the scene. Okay. The two detectives ID'd the mystery assailant, like I said, and his driver's license indicated that he was 27-year-old Roger Harrington. Okay. While being interviewed by the detectives, Mark appeared beside himself. I mean, he was genuinely, unbelievably upset. We talk about these cases all the time where, you know, a detective's red flags go up because somebody's just acting strange. Yeah. He was completely beside himself, grieving. He asked about his wife several times,
0: like, seeing if she was pulling through. Yeah, just not sure. Like, yeah, yeah, not processing that she's gone. No,
1: he wasn't. He was like, there's a chance. Are you guys working on her? What's going on? He reiterated what he had told the first officer and told detectives Cox and Williamson that he had had the gun readily available in his nightstand because a man had been harassing his wife for the past week. We're at work. Well, we'll get into it. So obviously this perked the detective's ears up. So Mark continued on to say that Donna had taken baby Bailey on a trip to Florida to visit her family while he was on a business training trip in Chattanooga, Tennessee. When Donna and the baby came home, they flew into the
0: St. Louis airport. Yeah, it's it's not too far from Springfield. Yep, so it's like it's like a couple hours or maybe a little less. It's definitely less than a pain of the S than O'Hare. Yes,
1: <laughs> and so they flew into there, and Sarah Jane and Ira had arranged for her to have a like van shuttle service take her from the St. Louis airport to her home and drop her off directly because she had the baby with her and they didn't want her to have to worry about anything. Donna and Bailey were the driver's only passengers. And apparently this driver began to make Donna feel very uncomfortable. He was driving erratically. He was speeding. With the baby. With the baby. Yes. So she's like repeatedly asking him to slow down. And he's also making very bizarre comments to her. The driver had told Donna about a demon-like creature who had power over him and could will him to do violent deeds. Excuse me? Yeah. The driver also told Donna that he was attracted to older women and invited her to a naked sex party at his house. So she is really uncomfortable, of course, but she's a very polite person. And also I think that a lot of women, especially listening to this, know that when you are in a scary situation, you have
0: to be nice till the end. You have to be nice
1: till the end because you are scared to death of provoking and you have your baby with you. So it makes it even more important to just try to lay low and get through it until you yep. can get out of the car yep so that's exactly what she did so she you know got out of the car But she got
0: dropped off at her house
1: but she got off dropped off at her house so this guy knew where she Which I lived. probably
0: like would have been like you can take me to the hospital
1: well i mean it doesn't matter whether she told him where to get dropped off he had her address, address. because of the booking yep yep exactly so she didn't immediately tell Mark what was going on because he was at a training for work and he had a really big test on Friday and she was worried that if he was concerned about her, that he would be thrown or something. So at this point, Mark stops telling the story and he says, like, I'm really thirsty. I'm freaking out. Like, there's a Diet Coke in my fridge. Can you go get one for me? And Detective Williamson agrees. So when he goes to the fridge, he actually finds a handwritten note in Donna's handwriting that basically outlines this entire shuttle ride okay and so she wrote down yes he was speeding he was talking to me about this demon i was really uncomfortable and it says a lot of the same things that mark has reported to this police officer okay. so he's like all right so he gets the diet coke and he takes that note note was in the fridge it was like on a magnet like pinned the to the fridge okay. yes and so he takes that into evidence So he comes back into the interview and he says that even though Donna didn't want to tell him, she was still freaked out enough that she called her friend Deanne, Deanne Schultz, who I told you about. And she had
0: Deanne and I think one of her teenage daughters. I would have called you immediately. Oh, yeah. I would have called you from the fucking car.
1: Yeah, I you absolutely would have and you'd been like, let's have a nice Look conversation. Look up his name
0: and address online and call the cops now. Well, you would have texted me that and then you would
1: have told me to call the cops and then call you so you had someone else to talk yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, so she immediately called her friend, had her friend come over and I think her friend's daughter also came over okay. and like they stayed at the house for two more nights. That's great to make sure that she was okay. Good. So finally, when Donna told him on Friday after his test what had happened, he was, of course, incensed. I mean, his wife was scared. His baby and his wife's life were threatened if he was driving like a maniac, Mm -hmm. you know. So even without all the weird stuff, that was still not cool. No. So he was like, Donna, I want you to write down everything that happened, every weird thing. I don't like, I don't You want you to spare a detail because we're going to lodge a complaint to this company to make sure that this maniac isn't driving
0: other people around. Other women? Or what if he had like a young woman in the car? Yeah, exactly.
1: So then Mark called and he complained to the owner of the company who put him directly in touch with this driver. (gasps) Yeah. What? Yeah, this seems like a real breach of protocol right there.
0: Whoa. I'm going to put you in touch with this potentially insane driver who knows exactly where you live. Yeah. So Mark said that he had talked to the man earlier that
1: same day that Donna ended up attacked to request that he stop calling Donna because they were getting uh, hang-up calls. Ugh. Yeah, and they believed that it was this driver because I guess he also had their phone number from the booking as well. Wow. Yeah. So he said that he had called this driver and was like, hey, you really need to stop calling my wife and let me know what we have to do to make that happen. And the guy was just like kind of babbling and he wasn't really making sense. And so Mark just got off the phone with him. So at this point, Mark had asked earlier, like, have you identified who he is? Do you know who he is? Yeah. And the detectives at that point didn't want to say for sure who he was. They wanted to get the story from Mark first, but they knew that his name was Roger Harrington. So they'd been like, we're still working to identify him. And so at this point, after, you know, getting this far into the story, Mark turned to the investigators and he was like, is his name Roger? And at that point, Detective Cox, he talks about on the 2020, he was like, I didn't feel like I could lie to him. Oh, no, And if he,
0: yeah, if he's you know, like and asking he has some
1: information about this guy, you know, and so at that point he said, yes, that the victim's name was Roger Harrington. And Mark shouted, oh my God, that's him. Roger Harrington was the driver who had been harassing Donna all week. After speaking to Roger's employer, the detectives discovered that Roger had been suspended from his job following the winger's complaints. A theory emerged that Roger Harrington had become fixated on Donna. He knew where she lived, like we said, and after his stalking and harassment resulted in the suspension of his livelihood, he violently confronted the object of his obsession with fatal results. So at this point, Mark was asked if the hammer that was used in the commission of the crime was something that was part of their household or was it something that Harrington brought from his own house? Crazy. Yeah. And he said, actually, that was our hammer. It was laying on the dining room table because apparently donna had been asking him forever to hang this hat rack okay and so she had told him right before he went to work out she's like look i'm just leaving this hammer on the dining room table until you get around to this thing and he's like i'll do it after my workout in the basement and that's why the hammer was there and so apparently he had grabbed it off the dining room table and beat donna to death with it
0: how did he get in the house that's a
1: big question and I don't know if their door was unlocked or what the situation was, but they didn't even really ask Mark about this for whatever reason. As the forensics team swept Roger's car for evidence, they comforted Mark who had just been informed that neither Donna nor Roger had survived. Mark broke down as he realized his wife was gone and he had also killed a man, which is very heavy. Yeah, So Mark sobbed and he asked Detective Cox if he was going to go to jail for killing Roger.
0: But like you wouldn't if it was just self-defense.
1: No, he just didn't. I think he was just really emotionally taken with this whole scenario. And he's like, I lost my wife. I killed a guy. Like, what does that mean for me? You know? Okay. And Cox assured him that if his story checked out, that it was a clear cut case of self-defense. Yeah. Any human being would have sought to end the attack on their partner using any means they would have had. If they had a gun, like, more power to you, you know? Well, yeah, I'm,
0: like, shocked that he could get to his gun so quickly.
1: Mm-hmm. So Cox is like, don't worry about this. In fact, to me, you're a hero. Yeah. And to a lot of other people and later in the media, Mark was absolutely considered a hero. You know, one who was unfortunately just a little too late to save his wife— But he had managed to shield his three-month-old baby. Like if who was a baby girl, a little baby girl. What if he hadn't heard or he hadn't come up at the right time? Yeah, she's just on the fucking bed, just by herself, completely
0: vulnerable, nauseating.
1: Yeah, so he is a hero. So, yeah, Cox and Williamson followed up on the case, and they discovered a police report that showed that Deanne Schultz had called to report that her friend Donna was being harassed by a man who drove her home from the airport. Wow. So Deanne had called from Donna's house to report it for her. When she was was spending spending the night. Yeah, yeah, when she was staying with them. And Cox had an unsettling feeling. Oh, so that would be so you.
0: Oh my you god! You would absolutely call. Like I'd be like, "No, it's fine. Don't worry. I don't want to get him fired." And, you're and like- you'd fall asleep. And I'd be like, "I'm i uh, I'm calling to report a case of harassment." Yes, that is one. Are you recording?
1: <laughs> that is one hundred percent you. So Cox, when he saw the victim, and then when he saw the driver's license. He really thought that he knew Roger Harrington somehow, but he didn't remember how. Really? Yeah. So the senior detective on this is like, I don't I feel like I know this guy. So he ran his background check and it all like clicked in for him. So Cox had owned a mobile home park and he had rented a trailer to Roger Ooh, and his now ex-wife. What? Mm-hmm. So one day, he heard screaming and smashing glass coming from the trailer, and he went to check out the commotion. Was he a cop at the time? I'm not sure. Okay. So he heard this commotion, and he broke into the trailer, and he was furious to discover that Roger was beating his wife. He said that Roger had her bent over the couch and was getting ready to hit her again, is what it looked like when he came into the trailer. So Cox intervened and literally threw him out of the trailer, like on his ass and was like, you get the hell out of here. You're banned from the park forever. And then Harrington's wife decided not to press charges. She's abused. Yeah. So unfortunately, you know, he didn't really have a good resolution for that story.
0: Um, Oh, my God. um, That has to be so frustrating. And then you're going into this case and you're
1: like. If only she had pressed those charges, maybe it could have protected this woman against
0: him. Because he'd have charges before he gets hired somewhere.
1: And think about that. This is really like he had literally thrown that guy like off of a woman out into, you know, the street. So he has got a a strong emotional pull to this scenario now. He also found out that Roger had spent some time in a mental health facility. All things considered, especially from Detective Cox's point of view, who has firsthand knowledge of this guy... Mark Winger's account of what happened seemed not only feasible, but really likely. Yeah. All of the witnesses, including a bereft Sarah Jane and her husband Ira, as well as their neighbors, friends, all of the people at the synagogue, they all claimed that Donna and Mark had a perfect marriage and that the two actually had been happier than they ever had been (sighs) since the baby had arrived. You're setting it up like it isn't, though.
0: (laughs) I know you. You're setting it up like it isn't. I mean, it's never this easy. You're setting it up like it really isn't. And I don't understand where the cracks are in this story. I mean, it seems pretty airtight, I got to say. I got to say it's airtight.
1: I got to say. Yeah. It's kind of like they say when you hear hoofbeats, don't think zebras.
0: I was like thinking reindeer because it's like Christmas time. Oh, yeah.
1: Don't think reindeer. It's probably just horses. You know, it's like a lot of times our minds go to the most exotic possibility. But, you know... Nine and a half times out of 10, it's the most obvious answer, which is what it was in this case. So in Detective Cox's report, he wrote that Mark was genuinely destroyed by this murder. And it was very apparent that he and his wife had been very much in love and that this should have never happened. The county state's attorney announced at a press conference that Mark had acted in self-defense when he shot Roger Harrington and therefore no charges were going to be filed against him. The case was officially closed almost within 48 hours of the murders, and the media hailed Mark Winger as a tragic hero who had attempted to save his beautiful young wife from a crazed maniac who had been stalking her. Now, Roger Harrington's parents and sister did not buy this even for a second. They were, of course, angry, lost, and grieving, They felt like Roger was an easygoing guy. As far as his ex-wife goes, apparently they had this toxic relationship, which is absolutely no excuse for laying hands on somebody ever. But they really, really didn't believe that he had done this. It didn't make sense to them that he would stalk this woman that he had only driven home once and that he had been so compelled to get some sort of revenge against her that he had gone into her home. Like this was just very bizarre to them of course and you know anyone whose family member maybe did something like this you would be asking a lot of questions you would be like well what is the investigation saying and where's your evidence and what's going on because you want them to prove to you that the person you loved really did do this and that ugh, I mean what happened when they were murdered you know well also like could you imagine how horrible her mom feels uh booking the car I mean, can you imagine how terrible his parents are feeling thinking that they raised a child who would do this? Yeah. You know, this is really heartbreaking all around for everyone who's connected to this case. And it was especially hard on the Harringtons because they were asking the police questions and the police were kind of like, you know, fuck you. You don't deserve to, you know, have a full-scale investigation. Your son slash brother is a creep who apparently beat his wife, and now murdered this woman and was, you know, stalking her potentially. And they just were really rude to the Harringtons altogether. So it was just really hurtful. The Harringtons were really salt of the earth, down-to-earth people who had worked hard their entire lives. They had actually adopted Roger and his sister, Barbara. No way. Yeah, so they're- That's like a
0: weird, like- because obviously,
1: well, it was a slightly different case. Their names were Ralph and Helen Harrington, and apparently Helen had a troubled cousin okay. who couldn't take care of her children, and so they had adopted the children. No, but it's still
0: like both families dealing a- with adopted kids. Like kids. that's, I feel like rare.
1: It's a interesting, yeah, parallel. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel. Thank you, mm-hmm. Andy. Basically, what the police, like, on their perspective was that they didn't think they were being, like, rude or dismissive to the Harringtons, but they just dealt with defendants or suspects, families before, who insisted that their loved one was innocent despite all evidence. Yeah. We've heard about that on the show a million times.
0: And sometimes any knowledge. I mean, sometimes parents are just completely oblivious to what actually is going on, too. Oh, 100%. You know, so
1: I don't think that the police meant to make them feel that way. I think it was just more like, of course, you're defending your Your kid, but sorry, you know, this is how the facts line up. So yeah, with no real evidence that anything could have happened to the contrary, you know, the police, the media picked up on the story as it was. And I do feel really bad for the Harrington's because they basically watched as the media worshipped Mark Winger. So regardless of him being in the right, you're still seeing the media worship the person who killed, killed your kid. Your son. Yeah, and that is a really hard Rural. pill to swallow. Yeah. So the Harringtons also knew that the police had taken a statement from Roger's roommate Susan Collins, in which she stated that she felt like Roger. Absolutely, had had a meeting with the wingers. Wait, what? Is she like normal? So both her and Roger smoke a lot of pot,
0: you know, and okay. like like everyone does like now. Pots a big deal at all? Absolutely not. It's illegal um, now, so
1: yes, but back in the day, it was still like we're talking ninety five. I mean, the war of on drugs was still going no, on. I know, at this I know, point. I know, but like, so they are just. Totally, like, harmless, sweet people who were kind of stoners. And I guess that she had had some, like, bad check-passing situations or something, which doesn't make her a bad person. It just... It is what it is. Although we have had several murderers start with weird check situations. That is not particularly females. Yeah, I know. But that is is not (laughs) Susan Collins, guys. I'm not setting this up. Susan
0: Collins.
1: (laughs) I'm not setting this up for Susan to be the secret murderer here. But yeah, so they basically were saying like, sure, you're just also defending your friends. So basically the parents are like, wait, have you talked to the roommate? Like, why aren't you guys looking more into this? This lead was seemingly not followed up on it. It seems like in the paperwork, they were like, you know, she doesn't really know. She thinks that maybe he had a meeting actually at their house. Like they already kind of had decided on the narrative at this point, Okay, you know, so they weren't really taking into account anything that went anything against else. that narrative. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's also that the police saw a dangerous, mentally unwell young man who'd once assaulted his wife versus the word of an upstanding military vet nuclear physicist with not a blemish on his record. So, I mean, that's pretty cut and dry. Yeah, the Harringtons acknowledged that Roger had been in a toxic marriage, like I said, but they argued that otherwise... Roger was actually a sweet, sensitive, happy-go-lucky guy who had overcome considerable adversity in his life. He had truly loved his job driving for the shuttle service. He liked meeting new people, and he liked making chit-chat. The Roger his family and friends knew was more, like I said, a laid-back, fun-loving stoner than a crazed killer. His loved ones were totally baffled, and they felt very alone in their suspicions that Mark Winger had not told the full truth about the events of August 29th, 1995. What did they think? They just didn't believe that their son had done that. So they didn't know what to think. They just like they couldn't imagine a scenario in which he would walk into somebody's house, grab a hammer off a table and just start beating a woman to
0: death. It's pretty like convenient that a murder weapon was sitting on the table. Yes,
1: exactly. So what they didn't know quite yet was that someone else was starting to question Mark's story rookie detective Doug Williamson had a gut feeling that something was fishy with the grieving widower, but his senior partner Cox didn't agree. And I mean, we have to go back to Cox having this personal connection to this case. Williamson pushed him to consider some of the evidence that didn't quite gel with Mark's account. Okay. So let's get back. You actually mentioned this first one. Number one, there was no forced entry.
0: So we I mean, were so lucky nowadays to have rain camera. Yeah, absolutely. So
1: someone must have let Roger in. If Mark was downstairs exercising in the basement, that means that Donna let in a man that she was allegedly terrified of. Number two, if he was planning on attacking Donna, why would he park so conspicuously in front of the house facing the wrong direction? Yeah. Number three, upon searching Roger's car, the forensics team had cataloged a few things that raised Williamson's suspicions. First, there were actual weapons in the car. What? Yeah. He had um, something called a blackjack, which is kind of like a a weaponized tire iron. It's like a tire iron with like a, a handle. Okay. So it's used as like a kind of a club potentially. He also had a sheathed knife. So if he had these weapons in his car and he was planning on coming in to hurt Donna, why would he leave it up to chance that he would just happen to find a murder weapon lying around? He wouldn't. He absolutely would not. The other thing that they found in his car, and this was huge to Williamson, this was the big tip off for him, was a piece of paper that had Mark Winger's name and address on it, as well as the time four thirty. 30.
0: Okay, so you don't plan what time you're going to go murder someone with a random ass weapon from their table. It certainly indicated to
1: the rookie detective that Roger had had an appointment, like Susan Collins had said, to meet with Mark. Also at the scene, they had found a travel coffee mug and a pack of cigarettes belonging to Roger Harrington sitting on the dining room table. Would a killer bring his coffee and cigarettes to a murder? However, if you thought you were just going in to have a conversation, you'd be like, oh, this might be a tense conversation. I'm gonna bring my coffee, I'm gonna bring my smokes, and we're gonna get through this, you know? Yeah. At a meeting at the, you know police department, Williamson attempted to point out the red flags and asked the department to subpoena phone records from Mark Winger, Roger Harrington, as well as the Tennessee hotel where Mark had been staying. Okay. But the request was denied.
0: Oh, by who? DA? Well, all of like
1: basically the higher ups totally didn't believe that these red flags changed the situation. They were like, yes, there's some inconsistencies, but there's always inconsistencies in stories. We know that Mark Winger killed Roger Harrington in self defense. And basically, the supervisors at this point didn't want to do anything that would embarrass the department or cause this grieving husband more pain. They fully believed it. And they also thought that maybe he was just like, you know, he's a rookie detective, like he's questioning everything. Maybe he's being a little overzealous, you know?
0: Yeah, but trust I don't your gut.
1: So. So yeah, they ordered Williamson to drop it. So he was frustrated, but he did obey orders. But he could never get away from that feeling that something was very wrong about Mark Winger. In January of 1996, with the case very fully closed. I mean, it had been closed for months. Really? Yeah. I mean, they they closed it essentially two days after the murders. That's crazy. So in January, Detective Cox was surprised when Mark reached out to get his gun back. From the evidence. Okay. Now, this was a very strange request. I mean, occasionally people did do it, but for the most part, when you shoot somebody or when your gun is involved in a murder, you do not want the reminder of that terrible day hanging around in your house. No, like buy a new gun.
0: Exactly. So
1: that was the first thing that tipped Detective Cox off that something wasn't quite right. And then when he came to get it, he kind of like, hung around and he was like, so what's going on with the case? Like any um, new details coming to light? What's going on? And he's like, your case has been closed for like, basically since it happened, we know that you shot in self-defense and that's, that's it. And he was like, oh oh yeah, of course. Like, cool, 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 cool. And Cox started to get suspicious at this point, even though he had fully believed Mark Winger had been on his side, but he just like, didn't know why somebody, would be sniffing around a closed case if that person truly had acted in self-defense.
0: Yeah, that's not a good sign.
1: So soon other friends of Mark's were also noticing that he was behaving out of character. Only a few months after Donna was killed, Mark dropped by the Dats' house while Rabbi Mike was out, and he apparently like made these very strange comments to Joe, like these lascivious comments about... Like she was essentially saying, I miss Donna. And he's like, I do too. I just, I miss having sex with her. I miss like feeling a woman's touch. I feel like I'm having such a hard time healing from this grief because I don't have a woman in my life. And kind of coming on to her in a weird way, being like, it would be so healing if I could feel the love of a woman. So yeah, she, she was like, I am so uncomfortable with this. And she told her husband later about it. And then much later, another woman in their friend circle would later complain of a similar situation. Whoa. Mark also told Mike, the rabbi, that he was thinking of taking a vacation to South Africa. This was around six months after Donna had died. And he was like, do you think it would look bad if I brought a woman with me? And first of all, Mike did not ask any questions about who this potential woman would be or who he was dating or what was going on. But he was like, hey, as your rabbi, I really think that you need to take some time to grieve. This is a serious loss. You need to be fully present for your infant daughter. I don't think you need to be taking vacations with a woman right now. Six without months. your daughter. Yeah, without Ooh. his daughter. Oh, yeah. And at this point, too, um, Sarah, Jane and Mark's mother were doing a lot of the heavy babysitting lifting like and, you know, they were totally cool that they were like, we understand he's gone through this terrible situation. We'll do everything we can to take care of Bailey. But eventually, I mean, Sarah, Jane and Ira live in Florida, so they have to return to their life, you know. So after a little while, he ended up hiring a nanny and then that nanny didn't work out. I was and- gonna say, what, did he sleep with her? I don't know why actually the first nanny didn't work out. It could have been, absolutely could have been. But then a few months after, I think it's little less than a year after Donna died, he ended up hiring another 23-year-old nanny named Rebecca. You sleep with her? Well. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> She's really cute, too. She's a very, very cute woman. Soon it was clear that, well, Rebecca had been falling in love with baby Bailey. Mark had been falling in love with Rebecca. Obviously.
0: She's 23. Like, come on.
1: And, you know, she's living in the house. Yeah. She's caring for the baby.
0: Yes, what, th- what is that again? Close proximity syndrome. 100%. And on That's her- a real thing, especially when there's no actual, like, mother or wife around. Like, that's a real fucking thing. That's a real thing when there is a wife and mother around. Imagine when there's a void of that in the house.
1: Yes, and she later would say that he seemed to be a really, really good dad, and he was in a lot of pain, and he had lost his wife tragically, and they're essentially playing house Yep. already. She- was so in love with this baby she felt an immediate kinship with bailey she also felt like oh my god like how does this happen to a tiny little child who in three months lost two mothers lost her birth mother and then lost her adopted mother yeah so essentially rebecca was in love with bailey and things just kind of fell into place with mark so soon Mark was surprising everyone when he first told Ira. How old is he now? He's in his early 30s. Okay. I think he's like almost 34. He's like 33, 34. Oh, oh yeah.
0: that's different than early 30s. What? 33, 34 that's still? Mid. That's, that's late, early to mid. That's I would say mid, I guess.
1: Soon Mark was surprising everyone when he first told Ira, and then he told his friends at the synagogue that he was converting to Christianity. So... Basically, at this point, everyone's shocked that he is changing his faith. He's leaving the rabbi who is giving him the correct advice. Exactly. And the rabbi actually asked him, you know, what is drawing you to Christianity? At this point, you've been Jewish your entire life. Yeah. And he said, I just find that the Christian faith is more into forgiveness. They're more forgiving. They're more tolerant. And basically, at this point, the rabbi was like, What do you need to be forgiven for, Mark? What is going on in your life that you are having a crisis of faith and converting? And he was like, nothing. I just, you know, want to be Christian. Meanwhile, Sarah Jane knew exactly what was going on. Did she? Because Rebecca was a devout Christian, the nanny.
0: Yeah, obviously. Yeah,
1: so basically she was like putting this together because they had talked about her faith. she's smart. And she's smart. And so knowing that something seems like it's going on here, Sarah Jane wrote a long, loving letter to her son-in-law. And she said that, you know, you absolutely deserve love in your life. But, you know, it's really soon after this traumatizing event. yeah, And, you know, it's a rough time to jump into something serious, uh, particularly with your child's caretaker
0: who's 23.
1: Yes. This, this like, maybe, you know, you know, I'm not saying that Rebecca's not the one. I'm just saying like, maybe pump the brakes a little, you know, get to know each other, take it slow. And she even told him a story about how she had almost married a guy right after her divorce because she just was in such a hurry to have another partner.
0: Yeah. She probably just wanted to feel loved and like,
1: yeah. And, and there was somebody who loved her that way. And she said, thank God I didn't because I wouldn't have ended up with Ira, who's the love of my life now, you know? And so she's like, just consider taking some time. Well, Mark did not heed his mother-in-law's wise words and instead asked her to babysit Bailey in October of 1996 so he could take Rebecca on vacation to Hawaii. When the couple returned, they joyfully proclaimed that they had eloped.
0: What? Mm
1: -hmm. What? Yep. Only six months after Rebecca had started working for the family, they had gotten married. Rebecca was from a large and loving family Whoa. with Christian values. So everyone was a little surprised when Rebecca told them that not only had she eloped with her 34-year-old employer of half a year, but that she was also pregnant with his baby. Excuse me? Yes. So that prompted the elopement. As well as his conversion to Christianity, Rebecca is also featured on the 2020 and she talks about how because of their fertility issues, Mark didn't know if he was able to get anyone pregnant either. So apparently they hadn't been using protection because she was told it was not likely that he was going to ever be able to have children. And then lo and behold, they got pregnant and he was the one who was like, let's get married. Let's do this. Like all convert to Christianity. We can raise our children Christian. Like we can have the whole life together and you can be Bailey's mom, you know?
0: No one thinks this looks bad.
1: Oh, well, I don't think Mark cared. I really, I really don't. And I mean, as far as Rebecca goes, she was all in. She saw him day in, day out. She said he was a wonderful father and... She had first and foremostly really fallen in love with the baby. But secondarily, she loved the way that man loved his baby, you know.
0: And how he was like a hometown hero.
1: Exactly. So her family is a little surprised, but they're a very loving family. So they rallied around her and they completely supported the marriage. They were so excited to welcome Bailey into their family as well as, you know, the new baby that was on the way. But I guess Rebecca's brothers always kind of had some reservations about this, as brothers would when it's your 23-year-old sister and her 34-year-old employer. Were you they know. older or younger? I got the feeling they were older, but I'm not entirely sure. I didn't look it up. Okay. Yeah. So they're also on the 2022, the brothers. Okay. So the news was bittersweet for the Dreshers, who did want Bailey to have a mother, and of course they wanted Mark to have a partner as well, but they couldn't help but feel raw about it happening so soon after Donna's death. She had been murdered just over a year earlier, and now he was married with a baby on the way. I mean, we're talking she was killed August 29th, 1995, and he was married in October of
0: 1996. Yeah, that's insane. And she's, they're already announcing that the baby's on the way, so that means they're a few months in. Yeah. Which means they've been having sex for a few months. Yeah. Whoa.
1: So this painful feeling intensified when Mark told them that he and Rebecca were moving out to a big house in the country with plenty of room for the more children they wanted to have. And that had been Donna's dream. She Mm -hmm. wanted to move to a big house in the country and have just like a house full of children. And to Sarah Jane, it just felt like her daughter was being replaced in her own life, you know? Yeah. And so fast. Too fast. And an even sadder twist, it was only because of Donna's murder that the new couple could afford the upgrade to the new house. Donna's life insurance.
0: Stop it. Stop. 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 Don't even, don't you, don't you even. <laughs> Wine break. Don't you even. What, had he increased it like six no, months No, before? no, 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 no.
1: No, this is like, as far as these cases go, this is not an ungodly amount of life insurance money. Her life insurance had paid out $150,000. Mark had also received $25,000 from a state victim's compensation fund. And I guess Bailey was also entitled to dispensation from Social Security. So Sarah Jane swallowed her feelings of resentment and she stayed loving and kind towards the new family, even visiting Mark and Rebecca after the birth of their daughter. Wow,
0: she's amazing.
1: She was really actually excited to be involved in their life as like a third grandmother forever. That's you amazing. Know? She had a lot of love for Mark. And, you know, we're talking about how this rookie defective has these feelings of distrust towards mark but sarah jane did not i mean she really looked at mark like a son and she was very optimistic that she would be welcomed into their family and see their new children as also like her grandchildren you know however mark began to cut off people from his old life first refusing to speak to mike and joe Dats, the rabbi and his wife and then informing sarah jane that he would not confuse Bailey by allowing the child to call her grandma. So he's a fucking dick. Huge fucking dick. I mean, Ira is a very protective husband. He's on the 2020. He's interviewed for the book. And this was like something that made him lose his mind because he's watching his wife who has gone through a grief that none of us can imagine unless you've been through don't it not i like that's necessarily
0: being protected i feel like that's being fucking reasonable
1: yes like that, i don't that think you're that going to tell yeah. a woman who has lost her daughter
0: and who's adopted this granddaughter when her daughter was alive and now lost her daughter and still wants to be involved as a and she's grandmother. saying she will never call you grandmother yeah that's
1: and so sarah jane was like please 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 like this is the only connection i have to donna And Donna was the one who brought her into into my life and wanted me to be a huge part of her life, you know, and had her call me grandma. You know, this was a big deal for Sarah Jane, but nothing. They wrote each other letters back and forth. And essentially, Mark just said, no way. I don't I don't want to confuse her. She has two grandmothers she has a mother. She doesn't even remember Donna and she never will. And in fact, my wife is adopting Bailey officially. So that's her mom. Wow. So you can imagine how devastating that was to Sarah Jane, to Ira, to Donna's sisters. I mean, just completely devastating. This is
0: like a year later. Do you know how fast a year goes by now? This was
1: a little bit longer. I think that Bailey was like three when this happened yeah but a
0: couple i mean i feel like you literally had alden
1: yesterday (laughs) and i know now she's three yeah yeah it's it's fast i mean it's especially fast when you're you're dealing with trauma and you're dealing with grief and you're dealing with loss so yeah having divested himself of everyone who mourned his wife mark then set about trying to profit off of her murder even more by excuse me filing a wrongful death civil suit against the shuttle van service for not properly vetting Roger Harrington. So owner Ray Duffy claimed that a background check had been run on Roger and it had been clean. His ex-wife had never pressed charges, so he had never been convicted of anything. Roger was a well-liked and responsible employee who had never had a previous complaint, Ray Duffy said.
0: You would definitely have a previous complaint if you're talking about, like, being possessed by demons and... You would think so, yes. right? Yes, Yeah.
1: So Ray said that he did do the cautious thing by immediately suspending Roger as soon as the complaint had come through. He did say he talked to Roger about it and Roger was mystified about the allegations. He admitted to speeding, saying that his cruise control had been set to 78 miles per hour. But he said he thought that his conversation with Donna was pleasant and that she even tipped him well. I mean, the other thing with this so-called demon was that his friends and family members said it was more like, like how some people talk about guardian angels or, you know, their faith. Like it was just like this mask he had in his room that he talked about like guiding him. So there might've been some talk about some presence, but everybody who knew him said it wasn't usually something where he'd be like, I'm possessed and it makes me violent. It was just like, like some like idle belief system, you know? So Mark's attorney also alleged that Roy Duffy had contributed to the conflict, which you noted right away, by giving Mark Rogers direct phone number rather than addressing his employee himself. Yeah. But Ray said that that was categorically untrue. In fact, he had noted how odd it was that Mark had insisted over and over again on getting Rogers' phone number and contacting him himself. Whoa. So Ray was like... When people lodge complaints, they want to talk to the boss. They want to talk to the owner. They don't want to talk to, like, the guy they're complaining about. Never. So He's like, that was super weird. So he's like, I absolutely remember that, yes, I did give him his contact information, but only because he demanded it. So the police got wind of the lawsuit and the fact that Mark Winger had married his nanny and was even expecting another baby with her and their antennas go up. And had moved out to the country with all of
0: the money from the
1: yes. life insurance. Yeah, he's also, like, away from the community now. Yeah, It was really the marriage to the nanny thing that finally convinced Detective Cox that he had been duped. He and Williamson went to their superiors once more, this time as a united front, to request the phone records, lab testing for evidence, and other resources necessary for a full-scale investigation. Cox said to them, this guy is a first-class actor, but my gut is telling me he's in it up to his ears. Unfortunately... They were rejected once more. The news that the guy had married his young nanny was not enough to reopen a case. The detectives would have to find more compelling evidence if they wanted permission to investigate. So they're in this terrible catch-22 situation where they need more evidence to get the resources so they can find the evidence.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
1: Meanwhile, Mark's life was just going great. He had a young, beautiful wife who had just given birth to the couple's third daughter. Yeah, could you imagine giving birth at 23
0: instead of 36?
1: (laughs) And Ray Duffy was about to settle the civil suit by giving the wingers $1.2 million. What? Yeah, that makes me feel for him. I know. And he's like, I did everything right. I totally vetted this guy. I suspended
0: him. I I thought he did everything right as an independent
1: business owner. You would have never given one of your employees contact information to a customer, though. He didn't, though, did he? He did after the guy insisted. Got it. Got it. So basically, he like he did into
0: going against his policy.
1: Yeah. So essentially, like he said, Mark Winger said that Ray said to him, here, you can talk to him directly about it. Here's his information. And Ray said, no, I didn't want to. He just begged me and badgered me. And and he was like going to, you know, complain about me. I can't believe that didn't have some sort of hold in court. Well, it didn't really come up in the first investigation. It came up in the civil suit. Okay. So they're about to settle for $1.2 million. However, Mark's luck was about to run out when Ray Duffy received a curious anonymous call in March of
0: 1999. Curious? Muy curioso. Is curioso a word? Hey, curioso. Okay, cool. In Spanish.
1: At the 11th hour a woman called his home and suggested that if he was about to settle he should wait a few more days as information was going to come to light about mark a Weger. woman said this a woman said ha! it ha! Mm-hmm. A little angel ray duffy jotted down the number on his caller id and then called the police to say hey i don't know what's going on but i just got an anonymous call from this number That said that something is going to come to light at the Mark Winger case. Did anything come up? And they were like, oh, actually, we can't talk about it right now. But at the same time, they had also gotten a call from an attorney who said his client had potential information about the Winger case. And that this client would spill their guts. Is it Deanna? For immunity. Is it Deanna? I
0: love it recording with you because I can tell when I'm right. So bad.
1: We have to go (gasps) back to Zoom because you're guessing all my things. (sighs) The detectives invited the attorney to bring his mystery client in to be interviewed. And lo and behold, Andy, who showed up?
0: It was was Deanne Schultz, 100%. Oh, Deanne. Deanne, you smart I like Deanna, because it's like Andrea. Uh Uh-huh. So,
1: yes, what Deanne would say would blow Mark's story to smithereen. So Deanne was not doing well. She was very visibly not doing well. She had lost a lot of weight. She was very frail. She looked nervous. She seemed troubled. She told the detectives that... The weight of her guilt over the last four years since Donna was killed had driven her to attempt suicide multiple times.
0: Yikes. So what the fuck happened?
1: In a hoarse, faltering voice, Deanne admitted to having had an affair with Mark Winger. What? The husband of her so-called best friend. (gasps) As 2021 is coming to an end, I've started thinking about my New Year's resolutions. For me, I am definitely looking to focus on detoxing, cleansing, and just getting back to a healthy way of living.
0: Ditto, 2022 is going to be the year of routine and health for me. We
1: all want to take better care of ourselves in the new year, and an important part of self-care is taking care of your skin. And that's why we are excited to partner with Apostrophe.
0: Whether you're dealing with breakouts, noticing signs of aging, or looking to even out your skin tone, Apostrophe will help you get glowing skin this new year.
1: Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne.
0: Apostrophe connects you with a board-certified dermatologist who will create a personalized treatment plan that is perfectly tailored to your unique skin. Simply fill out Apostrophe's online quiz about your skin goals and a medical history. Then snap a few selfies and your dermatologist will create your customized treatment plan.
1: Apostrophe treats all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne, and even chest knee, back knee and butt knee. They treat breakouts from head to toe. And I am just so glad that I tried Apostrophe. Uh, about a month ago, I got on a New oral prescription medication that is already, I'm seeing a difference in my skin. I mean, Andy, you know how it is with the hormonal acne recently. Yeah,
0: it's painful. I can't wait to get on the skincare train with you. We have a special deal for our audience. Save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash lovemurder when you use our code lovemurder. This code is only available to our listeners.
1: To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash lovemurder and click begin visit. Then use our code lovemurder at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash lovemurder and use that code lovemurder to get your dermatologist crafted treatment plan for $5. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring this podcast.
0: Gaps in the diet shouldn't be ignored. Over 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet, and 95% are not getting their recommended daily intake of key omega-3s.
1: Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin was formulated by exhaustive research to help fill nutrient gaps in the diets of women aged 18 and up. It is formulated with nutrients to help support brain health, bone health, blood health, and provide antioxidant
0: support. But Ritual didn't stop there. They invested in a gold standard university-led clinical trial to prove the impact of Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin. The results? Essential for Women 18 Plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in 12 weeks. Wow.
1: Well, you don't really have to tell us because we are... Loving ritual. We were obsessed with their prenatal. I mean, I don't know which one of us found it first. I did. (laughs) Of course, you did, you trendsetter. But yeah, she found
0: it first and she told me that I had to take it as my prenatal. And I'm so excited that we did. I felt like a pro because it was my first baby and it was your second. And I was like, this is what I'm doing. And then you (laughs) followed suit. And right now, Ritual is offering our listeners 10% off your first three months. Visit ritual.com lovemurder and turn healthy habits into a ritual. That's 10% off at ritual.com lovemurder.
1: This holiday season, I want to give a gift to my loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationship we share. That's why I'm giving everyone I care
0: about StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It is a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most.
1: Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options.
0: Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask, like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or, if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out?
1: Andy, you know I like the juicy ones, like, who was one of your first crushes? And what was special about them?
0: Yeah, you do. After one year, StoryWorth will compile all of your loved ones' stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come.
1: This is truly something that is becoming part of our family legacy. These books are such a phenomenal way to come together and remember what's really important. Reading the
0: weekly stories helps connect you with loved ones no matter how near or far apart you are. I learned a lot about my grandparents when they were younger from my parents that I never knew.
1: Oh, Andy, I want to hear those stories. With StoryWorth, we get to give those we love most a
0: thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserve
1: their memories and stories for years to come. Go
0: to storyworth.com lovemurder and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com lovemurder to save $10 on your first purchase. Okay, lovers, you've probably heard us gushing about
1: getting to be together for the past few weeks. It's our annual tree fetching celebration and the official kickoff of the holidays.
0: Yep. And by now, you've probably seen about a thousand gift guides for the holiday season. Gifts for mom, gifts for guys, gifts for your neighbor's cousin's dog. (laughs) You could study all those gift guides and shop at 10 different
1: places. Or you could start your shopping at Raycon and get a gift everyone will use, Raycon Wireless Earbuds.
0: These things are so convenient. When you're on the move as much as our family does, they're absolutely essential.
1: Totally. And they're also just amazing around the house if you're a homebody like me. They make it so much easier to clean, cook, prep a two-kind podcast, you know, everything while wearing them.
0: Raycons give you an amazing audio quality wherever you go. Whether you use them to pump up, to wind down, to work, to work out. They'd be useful for anyone on your list. Even better for you, they start at half the price of other premium audio brands.
1: With their latest model, you get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. So Pure Mode is used for podcasts, blues, and instrumental type music. Balance mode is also great for podcast listening as well as rock and heavy metal. And Bass Mode for hip-hop, EDM, and reggae.
0: Raycons are available in five stylish colors, so you can pick a perfect one for everyone on your list. With free shipping and returns, gifting is easier than ever.
1: The holidays are coming up faster than you think. Now is the time to knock out that gift list and avoid the last minute shipping scramble. Especially because right now, our listeners will get 15% off site-wide with code HOLIDAY at buyraycon.com lovemurder.
0: Go to buyraycon.com lovemurder and use code HOLIDAY to get 15% off your entire Raycon order. Buyraycon.com lovemurder. So this affair had
1: started emotionally with Mark counseling Deanne over her failing marriage to John Schultz, and that had started kind of in the spring, and then little by little it got more sexual in nature until they actually had sex in July, a little more than a month before Donna was killed. (gasps) Whoa. Yes, and it did continue after her murder. Deanne frequently met Mark on business trips. He had confided in Deanne that he wanted out of his marriage. He could not stand the fact that Donna was unable to have children. It's disgusting. Disgusting. He told her that having biological- You're supposed to fall
0: in love with your partner first.
1: Yes. And you guys- deal with whatever comes your way so he's a narcissist yes who you have things that throw curveballs in your life yeah like but maybe he's a you're infertile
0: he wants his own what if fucking... your loved
1: one gets into an accident and they become a paraplegic that's nobody plans for that but no. you stay with them yeah. you know you care not for him, them though. you love not your him. person not him not this guy Nope. so he told her that having biological children was very important to him <gasps> But he also said that he very deeply loved Bailey, and he feared that if they divorced, that Donna would take the baby to Florida to be raised around her family and away from him. Yeah,
0: because she isn't a sociopath.
1: Deanne said that the relationship progressed quickly. Very soon, they were discussing living together. They were professing their love to one another, and they were making plans for a future. Whoa, that had to be so hard for her to come clean with this. She had tried to kill herself on multiple occasions because she did not want to live with this or tell anyone about it. And coming
0: forward with it is amazing.
1: Yeah. And very hard. And, you know, she was villainized by other attorneys, by the media. Nobody likes the other woman ever, you know. Even though she was doing the right thing by coming forward. Yeah. You know, and she described it as she was in a really bad marriage where, you know, her and her husband had grown apart and he didn't look at her like a beautiful woman anymore. He just like took her for granted, at least she felt like. And when Mark came in and was telling her how gorgeous she was and how wonderful she was and how smart she was, and she's like, I hadn't heard those things in so long. But yeah, so she said that she just was totally swept up with this attention. But yeah, things got even worse. This is all, of course, incriminating, just the fact that he didn't want to be married to Donna and that he was having this affair, But what she said next really floored the detectives. Deanne claimed that in early August, the same month that Donna was murdered, Mark confessed to her that he thought it would be best if Donna just died. At first, Deanne thought he was joking, like, "Ugh, like, you know, we want to get divorced. Wouldn't it be great if our, you know, spouses just disappeared?
0: Like, hey, that's like psychotic.
1: Yeah. So she was like, maybe he's just joking about this. But then he carried on by saying that he had been trying to come up with a way to make it happen. The best idea he had so far was to have an intruder kill Donna while he was away on business and send Deanne over to find the body. Deanne told him he was being crazy, and the conversation was dropped. But Mark brought it up at least twice more. Each time, Whoa. yep. Each time, Deanne said, "This is what she said." She told him that they simply needed to divorce their respective spouses. Just get a divorce. Just
0: get a divorce.
1: But later, when Mark found out that Donna had had this bizarre experience with the shuttle driver, he realized he had the perfect scapegoat. He told Deanne, I have to get that driver in my house. Now, Deanne said that she thought that he meant that he wanted to confront the driver for driving dangerously and erratically with his baby in the car. So now Deanne was saying that it took a while for her to realize after the murder that when he said, I have to get this driver in my house, that maybe this was a murder plot. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But like, who's going to rationally think that way? I mean, it's crazy. It's a crazy concept. So I feel like after talking about however many episodes this is now and listening to however many podcasts we've listened to in real life, I still would not think that way.
1: No, I still went either because it was like I said with the hooves and the zebras and the horses, like everything fit, you know. And the thought that somebody would mastermind the situation is just so far out of human irrational, you know, normal human behavior. So at first, Deanne, you know, like we're talking about, stayed willingly in denial, believing that the murder was just a tragic coincidence. Like he had talked about wanting his wife dead and she ended up dead. But it had to be a coincidence because she said, after all, the police had investigated and immediately cleared Mark. She felt like, hey, if it's good enough for professional detectives, it should be good enough for me, you know. So this was the piece of the puzzle that Williamson and Cox had been waiting for. They found Deanne completely credible, and suddenly they not only had motive, but the murder plot came together seamlessly. Was she still with her husband? She was at this point. In fact, she had first confessed it to her husband. That's, that's great that she did. And he was the one who pushed her to come forward. <laughs> However, they did get divorced later on. Of I course, mean, yeah. I don't know how a marriage could survive all of this, you know? But it's great that he... He pushed her her to to, do the right thing. And, you know, they had children together. So, like, you want your co-parent to be a good example for your children. Yeah. At this point, Joe Datz had claimed that Donna had mentioned in passing that she had a strange shuttle driver who drove too fast on her way home but didn't seem all that threatened. So, apparently, there had been some sort of gathering. I think it was a baby shower that weekend before she was killed. And when it came up... Like, apparently Donna was like, oh, yeah, I had this crazy guy drive me home. He was a real nut. But like, whatever. Like, she didn't seem super. It
0: wasn't a whole story. It wasn't that she was terrified Like that he
1: was stalking her, that she thought he was calling her, you know, she was just kind of like, yeah, it was just a really weird story. And then Sarah Jane also had told the police, too, that she was just kind of floored that Her daughter, whom she was exceptionally close with, had not told her about this really scary experience. Yeah, that's fucking weird. She was like, we tell each other everything. So if it was that scary to her, I feel like she would have been like, hey, mom, I'm a little worried for my life, you know? So Mark had been the one to force Donna to write that complaint note. And then he left it on the fridge and asked that detective to go get him a Diet Coke where he knew the detective would find the note. So set up. And the supposed harassing phone calls, they had been answered by Deanne and her teenage daughter. So it is very likely that Mark could have made those calls and hung up because he was out, you know, in Tennessee for business. And of course, Deanne had gone to the house to stay with her and Deanne had been the one to file the police report. So later there's another investigator who gets pulled into this. Eventually, um, Cox, I think he either gets a promotion or he moves to another department because he's older. And so another detective named Jim Graham comes onto the case to work with Williamson. And he says later that he thinks that maybe Deanne was a little bit more involved than she said she was. It seems like she could have been. Yes, and in the end of the day, she came forward, and this is the information that they
0: used to op- reopen the case. Which everyone needs to be, like, thankful for. Exactly, yeah, she- and
1: that's what he said. He's basically like, this case wouldn't have even been reopened without her. We can be thankful for that. Mm, I still have a strong suspicion that she knew more than she ever said, mm-hmm. given, like, all of this evidence that we're talking about now. Yeah, The fact that one of the investigators had literally thrown this man off his ex-wife was just a brilliant stroke of unbelievable coincidence for Mark Winger. I mean, could he have had a better detective assigned to this case? Yeah, no. Because I don't believe that Mark Winger actually knew that fact at all.
0: I don't think so either. No. So then
1: Mark set the trap. Roger's roommate said that Mark had called their home to invite Roger over to hash out the misunderstanding so Roger could get his job back. And that is why he had the note with the time of the appointment and Mark Winger's name and address. Susan said that Roger had been so stressed out about making the appointment on time that he had left like more than a half hour early because he wanted to make sure that he made the appointment so he could get his job back. Mark lured Roger over to the house intentionally to set him up for the murder of his wife. When Roger entered the house carrying his coffee and smokes, Mark Winger then killed both Roger and Donna and staged the scene to look like he had attempted to save his wife from an unhinged madman. Wow. I mean, just like you were saying, Andy, though, like this scenario is so beyond comprehension. Yeah. It's so evil that you would involve an innocent bystander
0: in the murder of your wife. Uh, just so you can fuck someone else. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is crazy. And so you can have biological children. You can be, fulfill your need as a narcissist. Yeah.
1: So, of course, the detectives really want to nail this smug bastard to the wall now. So the first thing they did was verify Deanne's account with phone records and hotel receipts. And it all matched up exactly. She had the receipts, literally. Deanne agreed to make an official statement and testifying at the trial. She was also— Against him? Yes, for immunity. Because, again, like we're thinking, there was a lot of suspicion that she might have been more yeah. involved than she was saying. But they agreed to give her immunity for her testimony. Okay. She also agreed— I mean, ultimately,
0: she's not the one who shot and hammered the shit out of
1: No, exactly. Her yeah. So she was also deposed for the civil suit— which totally blew up Mark's case. Apparently Mark's attorney had no idea that there could have even been a whiff of suspicion about this. So he was completely blindsided by finding out that his client, like he's not a criminal attorney, yeah, that his client could have actually orchestrated this entire plot. And yeah. so he basically told him, he's like, we need to drop the suit right away because you can get deposed and they will ask you on record questions that will make you incriminate yourself. And so the suit was totally dropped. He didn't get any money. And because of, I'm assuming, Deanne's call, that guy Ray didn't settle. Good. Yep. The problem here, though, is that it was still mostly he said. She said at this point, and Deanne wasn't exactly the ideal witness. She was a cheater with a lengthy history of psychiatric issues who had taken years to come forward. Yeah. I mean, she's very credible. But Mark had already tried to get ahead of the allegations by painting Deanne in the press as a scorned woman he had once had a fling with who was getting revenge on him for choosing Rebecca over her. Gross. I mean, they knew that that was going to be the narrative that the defense told. The investigators called Sarah Jane and Ira Drescher, and they told them they were finally doing a full-scale investigation. But this was a hard conversation to have. Because even as much as Sarah Jane and Ira were kind of alienated from Mark at this point, you never want to tell a family that believes that their child's murder case was solved that it actually wasn't solved. and yeah, it's in, f- in fact, the person that could have committed this atrocity is somebody that was considered one of your own. And a hero. And a hero. And Sarah Jane said in the book that... One thing that she had held on to was that maybe in the last moments of Donna's life, she had seen her husband coming to her aid, that she had known she was loved and she was protected. And even though she didn't survive, that she had known at those last moments that she was, you know,
0: being cared for. But no, she was brutally murdered by her husband.
1: So to... Except that mark had killed donna yeah. you would have to also recognize that that image in your brain of her last moments was actually her husband raising that hammer yeah. over and over again that's insane it's very painful but of course they wanted justice more than anything else in the
0: world and to get little bailey
1: yes and they eagerly assisted in the reopened
0: investigation Ooh, what's rebecca doing at this time
1: They didn't really know. Right now, Rebecca and Mark don't know what's going on. So they're living their best life. You know, I mean, I guess Mark at this point, when his attorney told him to drop the case, he began
0: getting worried. Okay. Because he went to the police station, like, what's going on, guys?
1: Yeah. So, you know, when his attorney told him to drop the case, he did know that, but he didn't know... To
0: what extent. Yeah, He didn't
1: know what to what extent they had information. He also knew if it was just Deanne... He could just say she's an unwell person that I dumped who's being vindictive. Why did she come up so late after this? Like so many years after this. And now she's saying that I did this? Or what is she saying exactly? That I wanted to leave Donna, that I maybe sometimes wish she was gone? Like, yeah, that's like if people are in an unhappy marriage, that's what they say. Like, he is thinking he can smart his way out of this. Yeah. And I think that's what he was telling Rebecca at this point, but, too. Yeah. No, they very rarely can. So what they really needed was forensics. So they went to a blood spatter specialist to review the crime scene evidence. So one huge thing first was that Roger Harrington was right-handed and had zero blood on his right hand. Uh, what? Included in the evidence was an absolutely Spotless ring and watch set. He apparently wore his watch on his right hand. Okay. If he had beat a woman to death with a hammer, he certainly
0: would have gotten blood all over himself. I know. It's just like so hard because there's so many people looking at the case and only the people who are actually blood splatter specialists are going to actually evaluate that. Yes. And of course,
1: Mark was covered with blood because he had they assumed, cradled his dead wife. So the fact that he was absolutely covered with blood from head to toe would not have alarmed anyone. And in fact, the blood, like I said, that was all over Mark, when they actually looked at his clothes that were taken for evidence, it was proven that while there was some transfer pattern from potentially holding a bloody person to your body, there was also cast off pattern that was consistent with, raising and bringing down a hammer on someone what yes from invitation to murder forensic expert tom bevel said that winger's story was also contradicted by the blood stain where roger harrington fell and by a bullet that went through his head and lodged in the floor There were two distinct pools of blood there, an indication that Harrington was rolled over before he was shot a second time. The bullet discovered by paramedics under Harrington's head showed that he was supine when shot. This conflicted with Winger's story that Harrington was kneeling over Donna. He looked up, Winger shot him, he rolled off Donna but started to get up again and Winger fired the second shot. The bullet exit and impact into the carpet is not consistent with this movement. Bevel spelled out what he believed really happened on August 29, 1995. Mark Winger lured Roger Harrington to his house with a promise that he would give Harrington a chance to apologize. Harrington entered the home expecting to have a talk. At some point, Winger pulled his gun and forced the driver to his knees. Winger shot him point blank and then picked up the hammer. Upon hearing the shots, Donna ran into the living room, leaving the child on the bed. Bevel's oh stated. Oh my god. Oh my
0: god. Oh my
1: god. Winger's plan worked. Donna was exactly where he wanted her to be. Winger pounded his wife with the hammer 7 times, and she fell to the floor,
0: with the baby in the other room. Mm-hmm.
1: And then apparently, he also hammered Roger Harrington's chest a couple times for good measure and then called for 911. Still, the detectives knew that blood spatter science was easily disputed. All the defense needed to do was put up their own expert witness who refuted Bevel's assessment. So luckily they found more evidence in the Polaroids that responding officer Beringer had so wisely taken. So the craziest thing was that the detectives didn't even know that these Polaroids existed.
0: Yeah, I saw the pictures in the book.
1: Yeah, because he took the Polaroids before they had actually gotten to the scene.
0: So he's a good detective.
1: He's a good officer. He was just a responding patrol man. So he did an incredible job. And when they looked at these Polaroids, it became the smoking gun evidence that they needed. The placement of Roger Harrington's body blew Mark Winger's story out of the water, said Detective Williamson. It was impossible that the bodies had fallen that way no matter how many times the police reenacted Mark's story. Yeah. There wasn't even a close scenario. Essentially, he said, like, he shot him and he, like, fell back with, you know, his feet at Donna's head, You know, but when they look at the actual crime scene photos, they're like five feet away from each other and they're in the same position. Like their heads are facing the same direction. Their feet are facing the same direction. There was just no way in which Mark's story could have made sense. Yeah. The investigators also reinterviewed all of the principals in the case, the roommate Susan Collins, who had always contended that roger had been set up a neighbor who reported that she saw roger's vacant car in front of the winger home around 351 why was he parked the wrong way though i still i don't know that okay he's just but of course it made the neighbor notice the car of course yeah and she noticed no one was in the car yeah and it was at
0: 351 it makes it look erratic
1: yes but mark is saying that this all happened very quickly he's saying like Essentially, this just happened. This this whole attack just happened. I ran up. This is what happened, and really, this neighbor is saying, "But wait, I saw that car at three fifty one, meaning that Roger must have been in the home at three fifty one if he wasn't in his car." Yeah. So what was he doing from three fifty one ish to four thirty ish when he called nine one one? Being murdered. Yes. So more people came forward saying that Mark's story had changed from one telling to another. Several friends said that he had told them one version, then switched to another version. The Harringtons were vindicated as the investigators promised that they would finally bring Mark Winger to justice for killing their son, but they also didn't trust the police. The police had treated them like shit, and the media had painted their son as a deranged killer for years. They were accustomed to living in a fog of shame, not even being able to hold a memorial while grieving because they were scared that there would be retaliation from the public.
0: So sad. It's
1: so, so sad. I mean, it had been a constant nightmare for them. Yeah. But fortunately, they're about to wake up because in late August 2001, six years after the horrible murders, Whoa. Mark Winger was finally arrested. He was 38 years old and now the father of four children. Of his own? Well, it was Bailey and three additional children. Wow. Yes. Got uh, busy, huh? Poor Rebecca was only 27 years old and completely blindsided she had four very young children i mean bailey's 6 so they're all 6 and under no job and she didn't know what to believe she believed her husband at first of course her very loving family rallied around her and they also rallied around mark publicly to support her but privately they acknowledged their own doubts about mark really yeah especially her brothers her brothers like from the get-go were like we just didn't like him. Apparently, like on a few of their first meetings, he had like weirdly detailed the whole account of him finding his wife getting murdered and killing the guy, and that he told it and not like this is a tragic story way, but like he was like Bruce Willis in like die hard way. And they were very put off. They were very much like, why is he telling us this story? And why is he telling it like that? You know?
0: That's really gross.
1: So they kind of secretly were like. How many brothers? Two. So she has two brothers. And I think they were secretly kind of like, maybe he's guilty and maybe this is like a good thing and he goes away forever. Well, publicly they were like, we support our sister. We support our brother-in-law, you know? Yeah. Mark's bail was set at $10 million, which he was unable to make, of course. So he stayed in jail. In the courtroom, when the judge refused to lower the bail, Helen Harrington whooped for joy and was even a little admonished for this. Three days later, she placed a memoriam in the newspaper for Roger on the sixth anniversary of his death. She wrote, although your death has interested many, it is your life we truly miss.
0: Oh, my God. And
1: I think it's really important for us all to keep that in mind clearly if you're listening to this you're a true crime fan. I mean, Andy and I are true crime fans, or we want to start a true crime podcast. And the whole reason that I try to spend a lot of time talking about people's lives and, you know, love murder is because their lives are the most important part of the story. And I think that that was a really
0: amazing a thing f- yeah.
1: affecting quote to me to yeah. be like, your death has, Interested many, but it's your life we miss because there are really very, very, very real human beings on the end of all of these true crime stories. And we always have to be cognizant of that. Yes. So on May 20th, 2002, Mark Winger's trial began. The prosecution argued that Mark had killed his wife in order to rid himself of a barren partner. Okay, that's disgusting. Despicable, who could potentially take his only child away from him. He had killed Roger Harrington in a diabolical plot to set him up for the murder. Tom Bevel, the forensic expert, testified to the blood spatter evidence. Deanne and Susan Collins took the stand for the prosecution, and the incriminating Polaroids were entered into evidence. They brought up the note in the car, the weapons that were also found in the car, the coffee mug and the cigarettes. And there was an interesting theory by the prosecution that actually Mark was smart enough to have potentially played this off as it was a meeting gone bad because there was too much of a trail where he had called the boss and asked for his number. They believe that he had initially planned on actually saying, yes, I invited him over so we could hash it out. And then he went crazy. But then in the 911 call, when the dispatcher asked him, do you know who this man is? There's this hesitation where he goes, I, I don't know. And instead of saying his name or saying what he was there for, he said, I don't know. And then as soon as he said that, he knew he had to commit to saying he didn't know who the guy was. Yep. So he had to go about his way, setting up the whole note next to the Diet Coke. Like, oh my God,
0: is his name
1: Roger? Yes, that's exactly what happened, which is if he hadn't. Faltered during that 911 call. He could have just said, We arranged this meeting and he went crazy, you know? So they also brought up what they think was happening during that 911 call. The 911 call ends up being a very important piece of evidence. They believe that Mark shot Roger and Roger went down. And then, of course, Donna came running in and he killed her with the hammer after he called 911 but had to disconnect when he realized that Roger was still alive <gasps> so he said the baby was crying no but he really got off the phone and shot Harrington a second time this was backed up by a neighbor who only reported hearing one shot fired at the time of Never's the 911 amazing. call yes it was a very it was a pretty close knit neighborhood yeah
0: i mean uh, i'm just thinking about my neighbor Asking me about my cat. Yeah. <laughs> and your she's Airbnb like, person. She's like, I haven't seen anyone go in the house in like 12 hours. Is your cat okay? Like, that's a fucking good neighbor. That is a crime solving that's neighbor. That's literally the only person that you ever want living next to you. Like, I don't <laughs> ever want to move because my neighbors are so amazing. You also have such a cute house. No, I know. I know. But my neighbors are are the best. Yeah. Yeah,
1: so basically this neighbor said that they only heard one shot at the specific time, which would have been right around this 911 call, which is, you know, the antithesis to Mark's story that he shot twice, remember? Yeah. The defense simply said that the police had gotten it right the first time. Mark was an upstanding citizen with a great job. He had a wife. He had four children. He had the full support of his church and community. His new Christian church. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas Roger Harrington was a drug-addicted mental case who beat his wife. We're talking about marijuana. marijuana. Yeah. (laughs) They painted Deanne as a bitter, scorned woman who was lying, and they brought up the fact that it had only been the lies of an untrustworthy woman that had even resulted in the case being reopened at all. The early odds are really showing their cards. Yes. This was a very misogynistic time. Yeah so anyway they're basically saying she's a liar she got dumped and now she decides to make this guy feel bad but why should that sway us from believing all the evidence that the cops believed the first time around yeah so continuing on that vein they were dicks the defense to Deanne in Cross they basically kind of bullied her about her mental health issues about her suicide attempts they really like got on her about the affair it was just to the point where an onlooker said at one point I just was like this is gonna backfire with the jury because you just look like you're bullying this poor woman like it was that bad whoa Ugh. Deanne got it
0: from all sides so you I'm know sure she did but I'm sure she also knew going into it that she was gonna get berated
1: yeah and I think that if you know she did have something to do with this if she had a greater knowledge then you know she paid the price at this moment yeah. you know if she didn't she Paid a price unnecessarily, but still had an
0: affair with them, so, yeah.
1: As expected, the defense brought their own blood spatter specialist who contradicted Bevel's findings, and a psychiatrist who alleged that after reviewing Harrington's medical records, he could say that Harrington had substance abuse issues, delusions, and an explosive personality, and was potentially dangerous. He didn't treat him. He just reviewed his file. Okay. The defense also had Roger's ex-wife, Terry, testify that he was abusive, but she was forced to admit on cross that she had told several people that he was a wimp and that she wasn't scared of him. (laughs) In closing, the prosecution did a little show and tell with Roger's perfectly white sneakers. Uh, how is a guy supposed to have beat a woman to death with a hammer without getting a spot of blood on his kicks? Come on. How did no one notice this before? Yeah. After about a day or so of deliberation, the jury found that Mark Winger was guilty LWAP, going to jail forever. <laughs> guilty of both murders. The jury would later say that it came down to the Polaroids. They just could not make Mark's story make sense with the photographic evidence. Another big factor was the 911 call. They listened to the call several times and determined that while no one could hear a baby cry, they could, however, hear Roger Harrington moan. What? Mm -hmm. He's like, uh, uh, that's my baby. That's my baby. I got to get off the phone. My baby's crying. And he hung up. But when the very eagle eared... Jury listened several times. They were like, nope, that's a grown man moaning who's dying. So sad. So sad. And his parents, of course, had to listen to that, you know? Of course. (sighs) During sentencing, Sarah Jane and Roger's sister Barbara both made heartbreaking victim statements. Sarah Jane said that she had nightmares reliving the night when she heard the unbearable news that her daughter had been murdered. She spoke about her ongoing struggle to get through each day. I hear beautiful music and I cry because I know she will never hear it again. I see a sunrise and I yearn for her so a million times a day her face, her voice comes into my mind. It has been seven years and I've learned how to go on, but there is pain that will never go away. Yeah. Do you know what I miss most? I miss touching her face and feeling the softness of her skin. Ima- imagine you have a baby. I miss picking up. Literally looking at right now. Yeah. <laughs> She was about to tell the court about her Sunday morning ritual with Donna. They would call and drink their coffee together and talk. But she could not go on. Crying, she left the stand. Sarah Jane might have said less than she had planned, but she came through loud and clear. Barbara, Roger Harrington's sister, spoke next. She talked about the good times that she had had with her brother and the bond that they had shared. She cried when she spoke about the unwarranted shame her family had endured. Mark Winger took the opportunity to address the court and was a gigantic asshole. He doubled down on his innocence and Roger's guilt, alleged that Deanne was a hussy who threw herself at him during a time where he was too weak to resist. How is he too weak to resist? I don't don't know. Like, fuck you. Fuck you, because you you just welcomed a baby in your home. He even condemned the Dreshers for ruining his life, saying that they were against him because of arrangements he had made for Bailey. So Winger twice mentioned his four children by name, once at the end of his speech, along with their ages, when he invoked them as a reason why the judge should find the courage and wisdom to boldly set aside these verdicts. Rebecca... His wife cringed when she heard her children's names and ages being read in open court. She realized then that Mark had always seen them as extensions of himself. Yeah, because he doesn't
0: care about anyone but himself.
1: My children, just as she was always my wife, he was thinking of himself. This was not in their best interest to be named in court. When he finally finished, the judge did sentence him to... Life without the possibility thank of the parole. Fucking god, thank a- you. After sentencing, Rebecca's brothers approach Sarah Jane and Ira about a visitation schedule <gasps> for their granddaughter Stop Bailey. Stop it! Stop.
0: Oh, that makes me so happy. It was the
1: kindest gift they could have given Donna's parents. The two families became bonded in their despair and grew even closer after Rebecca visited the detectives and reviewed the evidence with them. She concluded that her husband was indeed a murderous monster and filed for divorce. Mark fooled us all, she said later. I'm so sorry that I did that to my family. Yeah, but... She couldn't have known
0: better. She no, was and years she's old. doing the right thing now, and that's what matters. She
1: also said in the 2020 that she wishes she could have said that there was some warning signs, but he was an excellent father and excellent husband to her in the time yeah, that they were no. together. She had no idea. No, a true sociopath does
0: not <laughs> make allow it clear. You to see. Yeah, yes, yeah. And, and as 120%. a twenty-three-year-old, like sweet Christian girl, like, come on, there's no way.
1: Yeah the the police also warned Rebecca that if the case hadn't been reopened, that there was a very real concern that someday down the road, he would have tired of her and their marriage yeah. as well. And he already He'd got like, away oh, with it. You're 25. Bye. We've seen that before of guys who have gotten away with it and then they do it again.
0: Mm-hmm. Push Yeah, that's up. really scary.
1: So the book that I used, like I said, was written by Gail Zimmerman, a 48 Hours producer. And she's writing this from her real experience. And she said that they interviewed Mark in prison and that he was not only disgusting, but this interview in prison completely erased any doubt that the crew had about his guilt because, you know, they they do a lot of cases and I'm sure that there's actually some wrongfully convicted people, obviously. So they try to tell it from both stories. But this is what she had to say about Mark. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Interviews with prisoners are standard 48 hours fare. The most brutal killers managed to be on their best behavior for the brief time the cameras roll. Guilty or not, inmates use the precious time to plead their cases. Not Mark Winger. He preferred to show off his male prowess, apparently unable to censor himself. It began when the host asked what had first attracted him to Donna, and he said, her body. Oh? How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? It got out of hand when Deanne came up. Smirking, Winger embarked on a raunchy play-by-play of just what Deanne did to arouse him in the motel room. As I was standing up, my pants looked like a pup tent, he chuckled several minutes later. He lamented that Donna put him up to helping Deanne with her marital problems, but assured us that he did not blame his wife for the fact that Deanne came on to him. That was strictly Deanne's fault, according to Mark Winger. So the host tried to redirect the discussion. We had a lot to get through in a little Obviously. time. But Winger would have none of it. His saga continued in explicit language, making sure we did not miss his point that Deanne was the aggressor. It was an obvious attempt to get back at her any way he could from behind prison bars. Yeah. Good luck, dude. None of it was anything that we could or would ever use in our broadcast. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. So she's
1: like, not only that, he switched from pornographic to like disgustingly violent, talking about the scene of the crime and pretending like his whole scenario happened in violent, graphic detail to the point where everyone in the room was like, "This is so uncomfortable," and And inaccurate, and inaccurate, and they all left being like, "Yep, that guy's guilty, one hundred percent," and
0: we're not airing any of this shit. Mm -mm.
1: Well, being generally gross and terrible wasn't the only (laughs) thing Mark was up to in prison. In spring of 2005, an inmate came forward to say that Mark had approached him about putting a hit on some people. What? (laughs) It's always the guys. I would love one of these days for one of our women murderesses to do this, but it's always these egotistical guys who think that they can still control, who think they can still pull the strings from inside.
0: Yep. And especially because he's had power before. Yep.
1: So yeah, his number one target was Deanne Schultz, and since Mark had no money, he outlined a convoluted plot for the killers to get paid by instructing them to kidnap the wife and children of a wealthy former friend of his. He said that when they received the hefty ransom that would pay for the hit, they were also instructed to kill the whole family anyway. Apparently... Mark was angry with this former friend because he had refused to put up a million dollars for his bail. (laughs) Jessica,
0: how dare you? How dare you? How dare you not give me one million dollars? Not give me one (laughs) million (laughs) dollars. So then he said... "Mm -hmm. I'm listening, I'm listening. so if there's
1: any more of that ransom money left over after you killed Deanne... Please kill Ira Drescher as well, his former father. Uh-huh. Now, why would he want to kill Ira Drescher? Apparently, Ira had been sending Mark taunting letters weekly since his conviction. They're really petty, but actually pretty funny. Amazing. Ira called them dear Marky letters and wrote things like this. Okay. Oh, my God. I love Ira. <laughs> You're <gonna laughs> love Ira so much. Dear Marky, you look great in your latest ID picture. Isolation agrees with you. Oh, my
0: God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Amazing. Dear Marky,
1: I want to wish you well on celebrating your fourth anniversary of being arrested and losing your freedom for the rest of your life. Oh, my God. I love him so much. He also wrote him on holidays. Yesterday was Thanksgiving. We had 15 over and mom really did a great job with the turkey and all the fix-ins. I was wondering how you're going to celebrate the new year. Is Bubba going to stop by or are you going to his place? Okay, this one like beats all. He also sent him postcards like whenever they traveled because obviously he can't travel. He wrote, "Here in Italy, I'm thinking of you and wondering if you tried to commit suicide yet. The beach and sun are terrific here."
0: Ira <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, yeah, so he—that is why Mark wanted Ira to die number third on this I wonder
0: how many people, like, in jail, like, were like, but why do you want this guy to die? And then he was like, look at what he's doing, and they're like— Oh, but it's so good. He's so funny. He's gotcha, bro. You know, he, like, has this thing called irony.
1: So back to the plot, though. So there was a plot with Deanne. He wanted the killers to force her to write letters and make an audio recording confessing that she had lied— And that Mark was innocent and then leave a note saying that she was leaving her current husband. I guess she had remarried. Yeah. And they were supposed to, like, disappear her. Also, he suggested in a written note to these killers as well, these supposed killers, if you could actually do, like, an alternative ending where somehow you get— your own path? Get the detective Jim Graham, which is the newer detective on the case. He really hated that guy. So he's like, if you can get detective Jim Graham somehow— in a space with her body and then try to pin the murder on him. That would be, like, the most excellent. This is... He is, like, ordering up this murder like he's ordering room service yeah. at a fancy hotel. But, yeah, so this is what this asshole is dreaming up. So the inmate wore a wire and caught Mark on tape discussing details of the murder plot. He was saying things like, I want you to cut that bitch's tongue out about Deanne. He was, like, saying stuff like this. So he even said that when he was released from prison he wanted to be a hitman himself and he said that when he got out of college he actually wanted to go into the cia to be a hitman and he said not because he was into the law but because quote i wanted to do some cold-hearted fucking shit and i know i can pull a trigger good luck dude In June of 2007, Mark Winger stood trial for the murder for hire plot for up to six intended victims, counting, you know, the family members of the rich guy. The evidence was pretty overwhelming, but the defense tried to argue that Mark was just talking shit, that he was just fantasizing, that he was bored in prison. He was like writing down things that he never expected to come to fruition. In court, Winger was surprised to see Ira Drescher, his first father-in-law, sitting next to Rebecca's mother, his second mother-in-law. The families had grown very close, like I said. Obviously, because they're
0: both normal human beings.
1: Since Rebecca and Mark's divorce, Gail Zimmerman pointed out that when Donna was killed, the Dreschers disdained the Harringtons as the parents of her crazed killer. Then during Mark's first trial, they came to know the Harringtons as the very good people they were. At that time, Rebecca and her family were in the enemy camp. Now, five years later, they were all friends. They had a lot in common. All were deceived and betrayed by Mark Winger. Unsurprisingly, the jury only deliberated for three hours, including lunch, Andrea.
0: Like, what did they get? Some, like, Panda Express? I don't know.
1: (laughs) And, And Mark was found guilty. He was sentenced to an additional 35 years in prison on top of his life sentence. After Mark's conviction, Sarah Jane changed the inscription that Mark had chosen for Donna's gravestone. The one that remains today is a quotation written by Maya Angelou. Nothing can dim the light that shines from within, which is so beautiful and fitting when yeah. you guys see pictures of Donna
0: and yeah. her bright smile. She's so sweet.
1: So an interesting update. When I read the book, actually, Rebecca and Bailey and their other children actually all had pseudonyms. Good. And I did actually, for the first time ever, reverse that and use their real names Because Rebecca was on the 2020 this year in April, and also all the children were. And so I felt like if they were comfortable going on 2020, that it was appropriate for me to use their names. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Rebecca is a huge part of the 2020. And it's obviously very painful what she went through. Yeah. And she talks about how after, you know, when she made the difficult decision to divorce her husband. They were kicked out of their house. She had to file for bankruptcy. She had to move her entire family with the four children in with her brother. She had to get a job and she had to become a single mother of four and work through all of these complicated and very traumatic feelings, you know. But because of her faith, she managed to pull through. The kids are amazing. All of the kids were given her maiden name. They legally have changed their name. amazing, From Winger to Rebecca's maiden name. And they're bright, they're good looking. They seem very well adjusted. They were all in the 2020. And, you know, they all said that it affected Bailey the most. The youngest one is a boy. And he was like, I was one year when this happened. I don't, I don't remember this. I look at this little baby, you know, and I see this whole different thing. And they talked about like watching old home videos of their dad and not really believing him that they feel like it was all an act. And so they don't have any contact with him. They all said it was affected Bailey the most. Obviously, she was six. So she had the most memories of living with her dad. Okay. And of course, this was her mother who was killed. But one of the most beautiful things about the 2020 program was that they reunited. At some point, like Rebecca brought Bailey down to Florida and it was Bailey's birthday and Bailey wasn't expecting it, but they brought out a birthday cake And they were like, of course, we know it's your birthday. It was the most important day of our lives. Oh, no. And they put like a million candles on the cake. And we're like, this is for every year that we haven't gotten to celebrate with you. Oh. And it was just really special. And Bailey talked about how she saw that her picture, like her infant pictures and pictures of her were like with all of Sarah Jane's other grandchildren. And, you know, they have this whole beautiful life that they've reconnected and you know it's not the life sarah jane wished for donna of no course.
0: but the fact that like she's able to be involved at all and the fact that rebecca is including her
1: yeah i mean really there's just so many very incredible people in the story yeah you know our hearts go out to the harringtons who had to Those suffer that people, incredible yes. incredible miscarriage of justice that ran their child's name through the mud And, you know, I have to say they're also really doing good work now. Rebecca works with, like, big brothers and big sisters to help children who have incarcerated parents. Okay, amazing. And also Ira and Sarah Jane, as well as Donna's other sisters, made sure that there was, like, a wing of a hospital in Florida that was devoted to Donna to help children. And they also created the Donna's Fund at Women of Distress in Broward County, which is a domestic violence center that offers 24-hour crisis intervention. And I'm really glad that Andy and I were able to contribute to the Donna's Fund at Women in Distress. So often we do these cases and... Maybe there was an education fund or there was something set up, but it's now discontinued, you know, because it's so many years later. So this is a very active fund and it benefits amazing cause. So we are going to leave the details. If you also would like to make a donation, we'll also make an Instagram post over this. So this was heavy. I mean, this was a double recommendation. And I think for good reason, because it's a really messy case.
0: Thank God we covered that though.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of pain around this, but then there's a lot of wonderful people that came through and became even stronger and and better and kinder. I mean, I can't believe the people who went through this and didn't give up on humanity. I think we're going to have a very simple in conclusion this week. So I'm going to let Andrea take it away. In conclusion, Andy, you got to trust
0: your gut, guys, babes, everyone. Trust your gut. You have to, that detective did. You have to, even if like You feel kind of crazy. I think, like, we're at the point in life where we can be like, hey, I might be, like, a little, like, out there, but I'm feeling this, and you need to just say it out loud, or you need to record it on your iPhone, or you need to Just tell your best friend. Tell your best friend. It doesn't fucking matter. Just do it. Anyways, we, we want all of you guys safe
1: and alive, and we love you. Bye. Bye.